Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. It's my pleasure to bring you this interview uh, with Debbie McGrath. She is the founder and chief instigator at HR.com. Um, they have been running an, a profitable B2B online social network uh, since 1999. And this interview is guest hosted by Paul Gillen of Paul Gillen Communications. He is my co-writer uh, for a book that is to be published by Wiley later this year or early next year on uh, B2B applications of social media. Uh, we are going to play it for you in its entirety after this. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? I'm the owner of HR.com. It's the largest social network for human resources with 188,000 members from all countries around the world. I've been running this business for 11 years and have seen uh, significant changes in the business and the opportunities in the model um, over those 11 years as the um, economy changes, as the technology changes. Um, the only thing that seems to be consistent is that there's still HR and people issues throughout the world. So, <laughs> How did you get the idea to start it? Oh, that's a uh, long story, but I had sold a previous company to the Washington Post. I had retired for three weeks and then had bought the domain name HR.com and then decided that there needed to be a clearinghouse or a place where HR people could go to get trusted information and network and communicate with each other. So I started it in uh, 99. And uh, at that time, the, social, the tools of social network were fairly primitive. Uh, what, did you, what did you use? Well, we really started out as more of a, a magazine, an online magazine. We, n we never did any print products, uh, but it was a magazine in that we contributed all the editorial content and the um, uh, research that would help HR people with best practices. Uh, and then in 19, uh, well, let's see, 2005, uh, we launched the first social networking platform. We're actually still on that platform. We've just been building out on it. And that platform um, was a dramatic shift in our model uh, because now we enable users or contributors to publish their content themselves. And we've been in that model ever since. And uh, what has happened to the contributions to the uh, original uh, model where you contributed most of the content? How, how much, in fact, original content do you develop these days? We don't develop any original content. And so what are, the core, uh, what are the core features that seem to be most popular with your audience? Uh, a learning and education. So we have continuing education credits, or in, in the HR space it's called uh, HRCI credits, and they get that for their degree or certificate process. And we have uh, about 30 of those sessions, which are webcasts every month, with an average of attendance just under 400 people. 
So the, most people are doing it for continuing education and learning experiences. Uh, so that's a very popular feature, but just uh, the ability to come to the site to look up to network, to find who else is in your local area, to contribute or share your best practices. It has taken us substantially longer to get our contributors um, familiar with the ability that they can do that. But it's like every community. It's 80-20, right? 20% of our community contributes and participates more than the other 80%. Uh, these webcasts uh, the, and these uh, uh, the online learning programs, these are provided by experts for you uh, at no charge? Um, actually, they pay to do it. <laughs> and, and what is their incentive? Their incentive is that they get to showcase their expertise and um, um, become a thought leader and industry expert in the space, and they also use it in many cases for lead generation program. Now, if you're uh, delivering accredited courses, what kind of discipline do you bring the process of, of building your program so that they, are, uh, they, they meet the demands of accreditation? So we have um, very strict deadlines that are put on through a third-party uh, accreditation unit, and every single um, webcast has to be accredited. Uh, it has to fit certain dimensions, so it has to be only educational, can't be sales-orientated, has to be 45 minutes in duration with 15 minutes of interactive Q&A. Uh, we do provide transcripts and PowerPoints to all the audience, so the association or the industry body governs what happens in those so that we get the certification approved. And do you uh, generate revenue from the accreditation itself? No, we don't. What, what are, your, are your primary revenue sources? Uh, we have revenue from what we call events, and events can be a virtual event platform that we've built or our webcasts. Uh, we also have uh, revenue from on-site advertising, so even if they're going through um, the website and connecting and networking to people, we have on-site advertising. And then we have a subscription model. Uh, online subscriptions have been kind of a dicey service to, to monetize. Has that been a successful revenue generator for you? Um, it hasn't been as successful as we'd hoped, uh, but they do get premium content that's not available through regular subscription, and it's an aggregation of a number of third-party services. And it's very focused on a specific portion of our membership, which is a small to medium-sized business. But it, it is hard slogging trying to get those converting. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I can imagine. Uh, what Can you give me any numbers of how many uh, uh, paying subscribers you have? Uh, we don't actually disclose that. So. Mm -hmm. How about total uh, membership? Do you disclose that? Yeah, 188,000. And uh, can anyone pretty much register, or do you, yep. have, uh, do you review registrations to make sure you're getting the right people? Anyone can register. Um, part of the free registration, they actually have to accept one ad from a sponsor a week, and that's it. Hmm, that's interesting. How does that model work, accepting a free ad? Well, it's part of our revenue stream through our online advertising, so our sponsors can send out a message to our members. They rent our email list, so they have the option of targeting or, or focusing on specific membership. Um, so, for example, somebody may want to just buy the list for vice presidents of HR in New York, and we would sell everything once per week, so they'd only get one message per week from us. And that seems to be okay. You haven't had any uh, substantial complaints about that? Um, you know, people would rather have everything without ads all the time, but unfortunately this is an ad model. In your forums, I mean, your forums seem to be quite busy. Uh, what, uh, how do you administer those forums, or do you administer them at all? 
Uh, when we first moved to the social networking platform, we did have people who moderated all content that went on our site. We also had people who moderated all the forums, the discussion groups, the chats. And in the, well, since 2005, we've only ever had to pull down two pieces of content because the members moderated and read it themselves. In terms of, uh, I don't know, did you have background uh, with uh, B2B professional networks before? No, I did not. And, and actually, that's one of the hard things, I think, about this industry is that I don't have a lot of peers. Like, they're, the marketing.com isn't the same model as us. <laughs> the engineering.com, not the same model, right? So it's really hard to, to figure out how to build business-to-business communities and social networks. And uh, I guess, uh, have you been surprised, I'd like to ask you about upside and downside surprises, have you had, uh, uh, have there been any negative surprises uh, from administering these communities, uh, uh, features or ideas that didn't pan out that surprised you? Um, There's been some shocks along the way, which um, still surprised me. There's no relationship to the quality of content and attendance, right? So if... For example, you have some very well-known speaker like a Jim Collins on our community. The attendance isn't substantially higher than if you have a no-name person. That is surprising. Do you, do you have a, uh, an explanation for that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it's consistent, right? So we've had some very, like people that we would pay, because uh, we used to do physical events, that we would pay, you know, sixty to $80,000 uh, for an hour keynote, We've had them come and deliver things online for us, and the attendance has been, you know, not as high as some of the free the free people that you don't know. Does it seem to? Uh, are there certain tricks with with topics that seem to resonate with the uh, with the group? Yeah, and with our group, it's all legal compliance, right? If we can have anything to do with new regulations, especially in the U.S., where Obama's putting through a lot, uh, the attendance is significantly higher than if it's something to do. Um, which is ordinary best practices. Uh, you, you mentioned the 80-20 rule, and I think actually a lot of online communities would say it's more like the 99-1 rule, where yeah. <laughs> yeah. really uh, a very, very small percentage of your contributors contribute the vast uh, the vast majority of your content. Have you learned any tricks for, uh, for stimulating uh, involvement uh, as contributions? Uh, no. You know, it's it's... It's a real struggle, and I think that people don't understand the value of sharing, um, as, that if they share, others will share. But, no, it's, it's hard to get the people to contribute. Uh, how about uh, articles that you have on the site? Are those, uh, those are all contributed then by outside experts? Yes, they are. And uh, is it generally original stuff that they create for you, or do you look for what people are already writing online and look for ways to repurpose that? Uh, both. It's, it's a combination. All of our webcasts are original content and creation. Um, I don't suspect a lot of our content is unique, that they could be publishing it elsewhere, but that's fine for us. <laughs> the uh, surveys that you run, are those, uh, are those sponsored as well? No, they're not. We run those um, uh, really more trying to create like a Zagat-like guide where our members, and, and we ha- frankly, we haven't done a great job with this, but we're um, giving it another shot. So sometimes you have to just keep trying it, right? But we do believe that the Forrester-Gardner model for an analysis is flawed, where you have an, a, a high-profile analyst looking at a system and 
going through demos but not really talking to the users or the customer experience and that they're being paid to do that. And we believe that if we could get feedback from the people who use the systems in a survey and then you could create um, more meaningful metrics like a Zagat Guide in terms of um, perceived ROI, customer experience, that sort of stuff, that would be a lot more meaningful. What, what do you do with the results of these surveys? Uh, we publish them uh, for people. We share them, first of all, in our virtual events. And then we publish them uh, for people to come in and compare their results to others. So, if, for example, if you were uh, looking at our job board survey, you could find, okay, if I'm a healthcare professional, I want to hire extra nurses, and I'm in Boston, what would be the best job board for that? We, we talked about the negative surprises. Have there been any surprises on the upside? On the upside? Um, well, I'm, I'm shocked at how many people come from us from all over the world. <laughs> like that we have such a huge following in India and China and every country in the world that they would take the time to register and contribute and participate. There does seem to be uh, more people from India and China that contribute content on, like, as a percent than in the United States or Canada. Um, they seem a lot more open to sharing. Uh, tell me about your team. Now, how, how many people do you have uh, employed there? We have uh, 32 people um, that work here. Have you ever taken any uh, investment capital? Uh, we have. We took a Series A round about six years ago uh, that invested 13% of the firm, but I own the additional 87%, and uh, we've been profitable, so we haven't uh, had to go out to get any additional capital. Uh, of course, your investors often want to see a liquidity event. Is that, uh, is that something you're on the lookout for? Uh, not at this time. It's not the right time to sell. Uh, I guess if you were, if someone was to start a B2B professional community, what would you tell them? What guidance would you give them from these 11 years of experience you've had? I would really recommend that they had some industry cheerleaders, so people who really have domain expertise to stimulate the community and get the content going. And then, um, gosh, it would just be, truthfully, it would just be so hard to do it in today's economy because there's all these ad hoc communities through things like LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, it's really, really hard to, to compete with those if you don't have critical mass now. You know, because people can start their own communities or do stuff like that unless you have, you know, all components on firing. So you need advertising, you need webcast, you need a virtual event platform, you need like a membership value proposition, it's, it would be very hard to start again. The, the virtual events, are these virtual in the sense of, uh, you know, Second Life type virtual, uh, animation, 3D? We're not uh, immersive 3D with avatars that you have to dress and stuff like that. We're more um, 3D where you can chat, interact with people. We have trade show floors. You can visit people's booths. You can... Um, go to education. So how we differentiate a virtual event from a webcast is a virtual event is a series of educational components coupled with a trade show or industry gathering. So we do them in very themed focused events, like instead of having a staffing event, which would be big, we would do something like onboarding. So a vertical um, segment of that, one-day event, three to four webcasts or educational sessions, four to five sponsors, a 1,000 attendees. So a virtual event is really basically a collection of uh, a collection of webcasts supplemented by some online discussion with some contextual advertising and um, interactions, so people can talk and chat to each other, visit each other, you know, 
um, instant message, email each other, that sort of stuff. Just looking at your revenue mix, is it primarily uh, uh, display advertising, search, uh, email? Uh, no search. <laughs> so we've never paid to advertise on Google or, or done anything like that. Our advertising components are, are email, on-site advertising, pay-per-click, pay-per-lead advertising. And then we have our event model and our subscription model, right? So um, it's pretty equally distributed. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyang, Analyst and Partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit OnTheRecordPodcast.com for the promo code before you register. And um, I guess, uh, I mean, are there any moments in the, the last decade you've been doing this that you... Uh, that, that that stand out in your mind, uh, events that happen, funny events, enlightening things that happen, just, you know, something that really, really crystallized this experience for you? Yeah, I can tell you what. Um, I'm always the one to push the bucket. Like, we, you know, we were the first company to move, or business community to move to a social network before even Facebook was really popular, right? So we went, um, we were the first people in the industry to do webcasts. We've been doing them. Um, 2002 is the revenue generation model. So we've seen a lot change in that industry, right? So we've always been the first to do everything. And when I wanted to move to a social network, obviously I had this big team of researchers and writers and analysts, and it meant severe job cuts right, for them. But I had to get my management team to buy into it. And I, um, I brought my management team together to try to talk to them about the power of social media and, and user-contributed content and why we needed to move into this model and how... Our existing model wasn't really scalable, and they were all, no, 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 no. Right? You know, we have to worry about quality. We have to worry about having enough content to have in our newsletters. We have to worry about all this sort of stuff, right? And they were like, nobody gets social networking like that. This is, this is not realistic, right? And I, um, I said, well, yeah, people do get social networking. <laughs> you know, it's our kids that get it, and they're going to teach us parents how to do it. And they said, no, you know, Deb, my, your kids are exceptional. And at that time, I think my oldest was 12. And I, and I said, well, and I just picked one of the managers in the room. I said, well, your kid's on these social networking platforms. And, they, and at that time, it was MySpace, right? And they go, no, no, they would never do that. And I looked up their profiles, and sure enough, they were there. And they were all shocked, right, that their kids were using these tools, and they had no idea what they were. And at that point, I said, look, if this is the future of where we're going. The kids are telling us the direction. I can get them in here and train you on it, or you can go home and learn from them, but we need to be there. And that's what made them um, see that they had that light and they could move forward. That's uh, certainly a dramatic, uh, dramatic way to prove your point. Uh, do you, a lot of uh, B2B social networks use a point system or some kind of reward system to elevate the status of individuals in the community. Do you do something like that? We don't, but we do have that in development. Any other innovations you can share with me that you, uh, that you plan to bring to the market? Um, 
we are very focused on um, facilitating our virtual event platforms so people could come in and create their own virtual events, um, making it very self-service so that it's easier for them to get content and then share in the revenue associated with that. We're um, very committed to um, improving and fixing the user experience so that uh, it's easier for people to contribute. But nothing like we're not like we're not missing blogs, we're not missing wikis. Like you know, you're not going through a social networking uh, RFP and say, oh, we don't have that. Let's build it. We have all the components. It's just a matter of making them more integrated and making them work. And for us, you know, we spend a lot of time putting it all on a single code base, and so that we do have an integrated view of our members. Um, and but it's really trying to figure out and monetize that better. Uh, just a, uh, on numbers, uh, you mentioned earlier, you said you do about 30 webcasts a month. Mm-hmm. And, and these are mostly uh, within the certification program, or are they on all kinds of different topics? No, they're all within the certification. And uh, how, how many uh, regular contributors do you have to your webcasts? Oh, so that would be probably about 350 a year we would do. And there's a couple people who do like maybe 20 to 30, like a couple companies that would do 20 or 30, not necessarily the same people. Um, but it's probably, you know, if we have 350 webcasts, we probably have 300 individual contributors. Can you tell me what you charge? Yep, we charge $3,000. To present a webcast? Mm-hmm. And does the uh, presenter get some, some bonus uh, service beyond uh, just the ability to present? Do they get a, uh, to a rental of the email list? Or? They can use it as a lead generation process. So the, the registrants, they get the, the list of registrants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But but you have uh, but you still impose a, a a strict set of standards on them the, so that their webcasts fall within the criteria needed for certification. Right, because if we don't, um, then they would do more sales stuff, right? And the attendance wouldn't be as good. Which certification body do you use? It's a it, there's one industry certification for all HR people. It's called HRCI. Were there was there any hesitation on their part to get involved in a new model like this? No. Really? That easy, huh? Well, no, they have very strict deadlines. We have to go through approval process. We have to pay a fee. Um, but that's okay. They really just want to get their members trained and educated, right? Do you have any estimate of how many of your members have actually achieved certification through your program? Oh, they have to, after they take the educational process, then they have an exam. So they can take up to, I believe it's 15 hours of, of webcast content per year. Uh, which they, is mandatory as part of their certification reprocess, and then they have to be tested. We don't do the testing. I take it for many of these people, the alternative would be to to uh, uh, get this information through paid seminars, and you're giving them the same thing for free. Yeah, and actually the largest um, HR association, which is a body called SHRM, it's SHRM, they have a library of all these what I would call archived webcasts or courses, and you can pay to get access to that library, and you get the same thing you get for us for free. You said that you, uh, in your background, you, you uh, had another company that you sold. What kind of business was that? Um, it had a variety of products, but it was in the talent acquisition space. So we did um, high-tech job fairs. We did high-tech career publications. We powered 52 job boards, including uh, the current workopolis in Canada. And then we had a talent acquisition engine piece of software that's now part of Connexa. And are, is your background in HR? 
know my backgrounds computer science and business you, what what about this market target uh, attracted you in the first place I just kind of wear it when I landed in after I graduated <laughs> you've been listening to on the record online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at OnTheRecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.